Ricky. How are you? I'm great, Robin. How are you? Thanks I'm for not too me. bad. Yeah, no, thanks for being here. Thanks for taking the time. So I want to start all the way in the beginning because we are nearing Christmas now. Uh, I read somewhere that you got given your first guitar for Christmas. Why did you want a guitar? Oh, man. I, 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 the dream started the, a couple of years earlier. And, I mean, we had was two, me and my loser friend. You know, we were playing uh, tennis against the, you know, playing the ball against the garage door. You know, that kind of poor man's tennis is what it was called. And uh, one of us got the amazing idea of turning the rack around and pretending to be a guitar, playing air guitar with a tennis racket. And the, after a couple of days, we, we, we uh, did a pact that we we're going to ask our parents for electric guitars so we could form a band, you know, because we wanted to be like, Richard Blackmore or <laughs> Jimi Hendrix and the cool guys, you know? So, uh, and I guess my strategy was way superior to his. I mean, he went home and he got a blunt, no, get the fuck out of here, kid, you know? But I went home looking really sorry. You know, I, I came all, all sorry ass and shit. And I said, mom, yeah, what is it? Life isn't worth, worth living without an electric guitar. And this kind of psychology is really effective on parents because not only did they give birth to this little toddler and now he's grown up way too fast and so his face is exploding with zits. You don't <laughs> want the, the freak to be suicidal on top of this, you know. So uh, when Christmas came, there was something underneath the Christmas tree that just couldn't be a football or anything else. It was long. <laughs> and I was keeping my hopes up. And, you know, when I finally get to open, got to open the gifts, open uh, the case, it was like uh, like in the end of, uh, did you see that movie, The Raiders of the Lost Arch? Yes, of course. When they, they open the arch and the, the, the faces melt and the, the, <laughs> the room is filled with light. That exactly exactly what happened. My face melted and I had my first electric guitar. And that, that love affair started then, there and then. And that's never stopped. Did your friend ever get his guitar? Yes, eventually. But he, he got him. <laughs> he was 18. 17 or 18 when he made his own money. Because they, they bluntly refused to buy him a guitar. I guess my parents were nicer to me. But as you say, the, the kind of the dream was born then and there. So... Um... Was it? Did it come easily to you playing the guitar? Were you immediately kind of uh, good at it, or did you really have to work at it? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was going to be way easier than it was, and you know, I was really angry with the guitar because it didn't do what I wanted it to, uh, uh, and I it didn't help that since my mother realized that I was really into this, she booked a guitar lesson for me mm. with my, with my um, primary school music teacher. So in the evening, I went down to the school to get a guitar lesson from uh, this character. And so he gave me a guitar and said, show me what you know already, because I've been fiddling around with my older sister's guitar a little bit. So I just, you know, played some, some chords, G, C, you know, whatever. And he was going, he was French, this guy, Pop Mel Dufay. 
And they said, not good. Your fingers are too short. And I said, come again? Your fingers are too short. Uh, <clears throat> what? I didn't even understand that. You will never be able to play the guitar. Your fingers are too short. You should play something else, a different musical instrument. And he started talking about all kinds of weird shit, like trombone and whatnot. And it was like, is this a science fiction movie? I want to be in front of the stage with a fucking Fender's Drat or Gibson Les Paul, you know, and the crowd going like this. And you start talking about flutes and shit. Are you out of your mind? But anyway, so I left uh, feeling really discouraged because I sort of, Thought of, I sort of uh, believed him anyway. Oh, my fingers too short. Uh, but I, I never gave up. I, I just mm. kept on getting at it. And uh, I remember the first, you know, the first time I played the Hammersmith Odeon in London. And it was such a big moment for me because all my heroes played at that very stage. And during the sound check, I went out and kissed the floor. You know, I said, fuck, I'm here. And then I was shouting into Hammersmith Odeon, I guess my fingers weren't too short after all, motherfucker. <laughs> that is very good and hopeful to hear because I, I, you, you can see I have a guitar right here and I have somewhat small hands. So and I, I've always thought maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I, I won't be able to do all the things that I want to do on the guitar. But that's, you're giving me hope. That is good. It is. It is. And also, I have to tell you something. I, I, see, I can see you have a Strat. Yes. Is it... Is it Strat uh, scale? Is it uh, 20, 21 frets? Um, I, I think so. It's, a, it's, it's not one of the official ones made in America. It's one, uh, I think it's made in Mexico. It's a player series. It's kind of a... Yeah, Mexico, a, yeah those are great too. I, mm. I, I had a couple of Mexico tellers of great stuff. But anyway, the scaling, it, it's, it's actually a longer distance between the frets oh, okay. on a Fender scale guitar. And there are different scales. I mean, for instance, I changed the, the moment I found out. I, I started Gibson scale guitars, 22 frets. Mm. And there are Valley Art scale, which is 24 frets, where it's much close for, for people okay. with uh, slightly shorter fingers. You know, I met Alan Holsworth, you know, this guy. who's one of the greatest ever that ever existed. And he had short fingers, too. And he has a small scale. He had a small scale guitar. And he could do those amazing stretches, sure. just, but he wouldn't have been able to do that on a Strat, I don't think. You know, so, that's interesting because yeah. I, I never knew that. Yeah, it's a good thing to keep in mind. If, yeah. if, you know, you don't have the longest fingers. You know. Well, I, I just bought this one because I like Jimi Hendrix, so I, I had yeah. to get this one. <laughs> um, Who doesn't? Yeah, exactly. But you, you mentioned that uh, time at the Odeon, and maybe this was uh, before or after, I don't know, but what's kind of easy action? Was that your first taste of success where you felt, okay, now I'm on the right path, now I'm doing uh, what, I, what I kind of set out to do? Yeah, I guess you could say that. I, I was, I, however, I got my break in the band called Noise a little bit before the singing in Swedish, which difference is sort of, it wasn't my type of music, though. It was more glam, pop, punk. But that's where I, the first time I met a really big audience because they sold platinum records and all that. But out of that band, me and the bass player left that band to form Easy Action. And when Easy Action happened, we got that legendary major label contract. I mean, we were 
we were the first band ever out of Sweden to sign the U.S. media label deal. And it was, it was so big, it's hard to get a grasp about right now because uh, back then nobody took Scandinavian rock and roll seriously. You know, you had to be from England or America or something. Uh, you, you know, uh, even EU, I mean, Europe, nobody took that shit seriously, mainland Europe. The only exception being the Scorpions, obviously, because they, and I think they toured so intensely so and had some good songwriting. So finally it happened. But nobody had ever heard of a hard rock band from Sweden. So when we signed that deal, it was on the first page of both major newspapers. That's how big it was. And it changed the game plan for a lot of other rockers here in Sweden. And it was also the first time I felt my, the songs I wrote myself in front of a huge audience. So it was really my first taste of being a rock star. Yeah. What? And I enjoyed oh, it thoroughly. Yeah, well, I, I was going to ask what kind of, obviously, as a kid, you imagine what it's like to be a rock star. So once you kind of achieve that, or there, there is a lot of that around, um, was it like you expected it to be? Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it was even better, I guess, you know. It's still just amazing standing in front of a great crowd, you know. It, it doesn't get old. It's just amazing how it doesn't get old. And you've you've written about this, uh, I suppose, in your your autobiography as well. But when you joined, yeah. <laughs> when you joined Europe, and then especially, you could, I suppose you joined right before it really exploded, and you went on a world tour and everything. What was that like? Because uh, all of a sudden you're in this whole different lifestyle. So so what was that like for you personally? It was crazy. I mean, when I joined Europe, it wasn't like it was very dramatic or anything. I mean, it was dramatic because I left Easy Action and it was hurtful to leave the guys like that because they were my really good close friends. It was really a hard decision to make, but I felt I had to do it in the end. But it was in October 1986. And the thing was, Europe were big in Sweden but not really anywhere else. Right. You know, it, it hadn't started to happen yet. Final Countdown was pretty new, newly uh, uh, released. And uh, I guess the, the first, and we, the, the, the first two months, the only thing I saw was the inside of a rehearsal place okay. because we were rehearsing for the Final Countdown World Tour that was, was going to start in, in January uh, 1987. So, I didn't really have a lot of contact. There were no cell phones. I mean, we had a studio phone, but not a lot of contact with the other world at all. I mean, we, we just rehearsed and played and and, and had fun. Uh, so we, we weren't really aware of a lot of things. And then we had to do a trip to Japan. And we didn't know that it completely had exploded there. Mm. And we would later to be uh informed that it exploded everywhere but we had no idea we landed in tokyo and two guys from the record company came and said big problem big problem uh, okay big crowd many people many people and we said wow yeah fuck yeah isn't that the point of this whole thing we're rock stars a lot of people you don't, you don't understand 
lot of people, a lot of people, big problem. Uh, well, we didn't know what he was going on about until we, we came through uh, customs and all that and attempted to go out. And there was like 10,000 people waiting, you know, outside at the airport to see us. And they were hysterical. They were waiting for a long time for us to see us, you know, and it was at the point where if we would have just been stepping out there, it would have been, look, I got his arm. I got his head. You know, <laughs> we were up for grabs. So we had to form like a little uh, alley of, of the guards wow. from, from the exit to the limousines, you know. And as we were going, it was still really dangerous because people were pushing from all directions. As we were going there, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And when I jumped into the back of the limousine, and there was a gla- one of those with glass rules. And on top of it were, were people swimming around on the roof, just trying to get a glance of us. And there were people under the cars. It's, it's a miracle nobody died. And I was sitting there, and, and this Swedish journalist was sitting beside me. And I said, Beatles documentary, because that was the only scene, the only thing I ever saw that even reminded me remotely of what's going on right there. It was crazy. And from then on, life wasn't the same anymore. We couldn't go out of the hotels, for starters. We were trapped in our hotels. We were trapped in our venues. After every gig, we had to do a runner. That's what we called it. The last encore and just run off stage and this tour manager gave us one row beach. We jumped into a car through the back entrance and away. Otherwise we were surrounded by fans and could be kept hostage for hours. And that happened before we realized we had to do it this way. That happened a couple of times and then we got wiser. But it was just crazy the following years. And I, I don't think anybody in the band was prepared for that i mean how can you be prepared for that and i didn't see that coming at all i, I just i was just picturing you, you know you were asking me you asking me earlier did you was it like you expected it and i have to say in this case no because i was picturing like this i'm i'm playing so a lot of people yeah and afterwards i'm talking to oh you like the show great you know it wasn't like that at all Playing and, and everybody go crazy. Yeah, afterwards, security. Try to get the hell out of there as fast as possible if you want to live. <laughs> well, in, in that sense, and obviously with, with years in between, you can look uh, at it uh, back at it differently. But was it fun while you were doing it? Because it doesn't, that, that kind of thing, it doesn't necessarily sound fun. Yeah, but it is fun. Okay. I mean... If you're a mus- musician, you're, all musicians are per effect a bit of adrenaline junkies as well. So it's very exciting, you know, when shit like this happens. And you never know how things are going to end. And that's, uh, that's fun, you know. Oh, my God, we're drinking a beer. No, 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 it's a cup of tea. <laughs> Oh, no, yeah. But uh, getting back to the... Um, because what I find interesting then, the, the band exploded, was so uh, successful, and then, like you said, kind of it almost felt like Beatlemania uh, to you guys. When you started working on the next album, which became Out of This World, 
was there a lot of pressure, particularly on you then, because you were the new member and, and they already had kind of a, an established writing core uh, with Joey? And what was it like for you getting in there and then trying to repeat the success of the final countdown? Yeah, I mean, if there was any pressure, they, they did a very good job keeping it from me. I mean, it was very effortless. And, and they pretty much treated me like I've always been a member, which I'm glad for, because I would have been getting very nervous if that would, would have been the fact. But they, you know, uh, so getting into the studio, I was pretty confident. And I, 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 I had rehearsed my parts really well, and I was well prepared, you know, uh, and I had loads of song ideas. That was not, that was one thing I, I had to realize pretty fast, though, that there's a lot of politics in music as well. Because I had, I, I was living in the Bahamas at the time. I, yeah, it's a tough job, but someone has to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I had my first home studio there. So I had loads of demos that I brought with me. But only, I mean, parts parts ended up in different songs but only one song that I wrote from scratch is on, on that on the, that album, just the beginning uh, which was completely my idea and melody and everything but and, and title and mm. most of the lyrics and everything but uh, uh, the rest got chosen were put out deliberately because and the, uh, I was told by the manager you know, Joe, we wrote the final countdown and we can't blah, 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 and so on, you know. So it wasn't like people normally discuss these days as if the best songs wins. Right. You know, when you're talking about outside writers, if uh, we have an outside writer with a stronger song than the band can supply, then we have to use it to get a hit. But uh, no, it was it was pol politics. And, and that, of course, made me disappointed because I had a lot of... Uh, really good song ideas that didn't make the album then I realized this is the real world you know uh, but uh, besides that I mean uh, uh, and also I got a lot of tough love from Ron Nelson the producer because and it's like it's like a wake up call this time is serious you know you can't fuck about this is the real world you gotta be really paying attention to each detail and we really did but I think the outcome was fantastic and looking back at it it was pretty effortless we knew exactly what we wanted to do and we accomplished it it's, it's interesting because you mentioned Ron Nevison and, and obviously he worked on you now with the with the Out of This World uh, debut self-titled album um, but, but looking back at that period and, and kind of the whole uh Europe period what what did you learn from that experience did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear how can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients can we be healed with sound sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives in the podcast audio branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. 
uh, I learned a lot. I mean, um, playing live and how to how to uh, how to master these big stages. Mm. I mean, how to run from a stage podium, you know, twenty meters <laughs> while playing "Flight to the Bumblebee." That's what <laughs> separates the boys from the men, I would say. And then they have like a 20, 20 meter stage that way as well. As well. You have to use, you have to take all the chances of, of making it uh, work for the audience, you know. And if you just stand by your corner, the people on that side is never, are never going to see you. Nobody had screens back then. So you have to physically move over there for them. You know? What if you were a guitar freak and you were standing over there and I was standing over there? You would never see me. So things like that. Yeah, I learned a lot. Uh, definitely. Oh, that's good to hear. Also, the studio studio work working with Ron Anderson and Bob Hill was amazing. I learned tons. Yeah, because I was going to ask because then in the in the early two thousands you did a lot of production work, you did a lot of songwriting, and obviously up until now. But what did maybe this is a stupid question? But what makes the, in your mind what makes a good song? Oh, a good song. That's a good question, actually. But a good song is, is something that has a really cool hook without being ridiculous. You know, I'm a Bobby guy from the butt. That's ridiculous. You know, that's over the top, even though it was a super hit. But um, if you have, especially if it has a, a, a hook that you remember and it, it makes you feel melancholic you get a bittersweet feeling that's the best hook you know and uh oh that's another thing ron nevison coming into the studio when we were supposed to re record his album he brought with him a cassette tape with an, a song written to us by diane warren mm. which is one of the biggest songwriter in history songwriters in history she wrote it especially for Europe, and he put it on, and I loved it. Uh, I totally fucking loved it. Uh, and Joe, we said, we're not a fucking cover band. Mm. But everybody in the band loved it. So we ended up not recording it because that's when I realized that Europe's manager wasn't really Europe's manager, it was Joe's manager, <laughs> which is a big difference. But uh, it was so, so so annoying. And I've been, I've been giving Tempest crap about this too because what happened was since we declined it, uh, Ron just turned around and gave it to Chicago, which was the next album he produced, you know, the American Man Chicago. And they got a fucking number one hit on the Billboard chart with it. Right. So I'm not sure if you know, nothing, nothing guarantees that we would have gotten the same success with it because, because it was, you know, that nobody can know for sure. But I, I felt really bad about that because I really loved that song. And I heard the, uh, the guitars, uh, uh, my signature guitars, I heard Joe's voice, the background vocals, the end drum, everything I heard in the demo, I can hear, you know, I hear it happening. And the song was Look Away. Mm -hmm. When you see me passing by, 
and I look at in your eyes, look, look away, maybe away. Amazing song. Uh, and such a super hook, hook, and also one that makes you feel a bit melancholic, doesn't it? Sure. Because it's about uh, a couple breaking up or what, whatnot. But anyway, uh, yeah. Oh, that was that's, the answer to your question, I guess. Yeah. No, that, that's very interesting because, um, well, very quickly, and I, I, I don't know the entire history, but, but are you on good terms with Joey and, and everybody? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't meet each other, but we never really socialize outside the boundaries of the band. No, no. I mean, I meet Ian Howland because he's a DJ on a classic rock radio show called Rock Klassiker in Stockholm. Okay. So every time I'm up in Stockholm to promote one of my songs, he's, he's there. And, you know, we're in great time. We played on the same festival sometime right before COVID. So I met him and we had a beer, you know, there's no hard feelings whatsoever. Oh, that's good to hear. Um, yeah. With uh, go, moving to out of this world, then because uh, you had Key of Hearts, which was also uh, with Tommy and uh, with Ken as yeah. well, I, I believe. Um, when did you decide? Well, now let, let's call this something else, and then let's do it, do it a little bit different. Yeah. The thing was, first of all, Key of Hearts. I didn't write the songs for that. That oh, was okay. uh, I was just called into the project as a guitar player. The label, they asked me if I wanted to play an Atomic Heart solo album. That's how they lured me in. And I was in the state of trying out my new studio, which I built in the house. So it was a perfect opportunity for me to try out my new equipment and, uh, you know, check out my amps and see how everything worked. So I gave them a pretty good price for playing on that album. And then it turns out they want to make, they want to turn around and make it into a sort of a band project. And the thing is, I was a bit disappointed about that because if I would have known, I would have charged them a completely different price tag. <laughs> uh, and so when it, and the album did really well. So when it came to do, they wanted us to do uh, album number two. And then we had completely different demands. First, first of all, monetary demands. And we had a manager who contacted them with, uh, we wanted to, me and Tommy to be in charge of the operation and we wanted uh, Ken and Darby to play in the band and all that and it turns out we have a Christmas break and we come back and the manager uh, calls us and said he just found out that the label has copyrighted the band name for the world worldwide okay so they just want to make they want to make sure that we were their slaves so, and our response to that was, bye, <laughs> have a good life. And so we told them to fuck off and left. And, and then we, then it's when the journey really started. Because, uh, but first of all, uh, I, I played a festival in Milano uh, with Kim Marcello Band and Tommy was there. And so the four of us got to meet because in, in Darby Todd, the drummer and Ken Sandler, the bass player, they play in Kim Marcel band, you know, and done for years. So we go way back. Okay. But and that was the first time the four of us met for the first time, so to speak. And we got to hang for two or three days at the hotel in Milano. And th this is really crucial for forming a band when you get to talk about music, your dreams about music, and uh, where you want to go with it. And uh, 
experiences, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we did that. Uh, it was really cool. Then we had a gig, a Key of Hearts gig, the only one we ever did, which is which is uh, the live songs you hear uh, uh, on, the, on the release. The seven live tracks is from that concert. And uh, we had booked a studio in, in Gothenburg. Tommy lives in Berlin so we, and uh, Darby in London. So we flew them into Gothenburg, where I and Ken live, and we started rehearsing the set. And like everything with this band, it was easy as pie. I mean, after running through the, the whole set three times, we felt like, we, we got this motherfucker. <laughs> we, we, we know this. We don't want to over-rehearse it, you know? Because there's one thing with over-rehearsing, then you do all the mistakes on the con during the concert, which you don't which you don't want. You want to keep some excitement for the actual festival. Anyway, so I suggested uh, that we'll listen to some demos I had. I had three demos with me, MP3s in my phone. So I just played them back. And uh, I said, let's try to record it. We're in a recording studio, you know? Uh, so after the end of the second day, we had three basic tracks for uh, In a Million Years, Lighting Up My Dark and Twilight, those three, three tracks. And those were the three tracks we uh, uh, ended up finishing up to show to labels and such. But I think there and then, this was before we had a band name, but there and then was when the band was born. We played right. together, discovered how amazing it was, and we get, got to record three songs and everything was just amazing. So we knew this is a band. It's uh, a, before it's that, we didn't oh, know sorry. one. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to hear about, um, because I talk a, a lot with artists about the business side. And I mean, you've had, you've had your fair share of being sc uh, screwed over, I suppose, by the business side. But you don't sound bitter, which is, which is great. Um, so, so, so no, how I, did, did, I did fairly well anyway. <laughs> fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> but, but has that always been a tricky thing where music is such an emotional um, thing and, and then you have the business side that sometimes seems like it doesn't even care about the music? Oh man, that was a horrible wake-up call. I can remember it because, I mean, before... Before we signed that, made the label deal with Easy Action, I had a much more naive mm. approach to the music business. I was under the impression that everybody is working together. It's a teamwork that makes really big success possible. And after a while, I, I had to realize that we're not even on the same team. The labels, they don't give a fuck about music. They, only care about cash. So uh, it, it was hard, you know? Mm. Uh, but it also very good to come to that realization because you need to know that in, in, in order to, uh, to uh, manure your way through to the bullshit in this business because uh, right. there's for sure a lot of bullshit that you have to uh, pass in order to get somewhere. What were you looking for in terms of, because you, uh, you had these uh, three songs that you mentioned that you were uh, kind of fleshing out with the guys. What were you looking for once you started working on this album in terms of sound and in terms of the type of songs that you wanted for the album? Well, I guess, I mean, 
first of all, I'm, I'm pretty much, I don't know if you heard my solo albums, but I've pretty much been writing the same song since 1985, <laughs> <laughs> different versions of it. But the thing is, uh, I I like songs with, with the clear hooks, harmony, and my background, signature background vocals, which are really influenced by Todd Rundgren, which is a big hero of mine. And uh, and also I like some uh, almost prog things in it as well, you know, yeah. like uh, seven fours and seven eights and eleven eights and all kinds of different time signatures. And but just a taste of it. I want to keep it simple. I want I want the song to speak for itself. Uh, I can talk about this because I wrote everything on the album. And uh, except one song, number 10, which I wrote together with the singer from Easy Actions in his hand and okay. uh, the drummer Bjorn Höglund for an album that we were supposed to do in 2007 that didn't happen. So uh, uh, that song I brought, the demo, and Tommy got the idea to put the tapping thing on it as an intro, which was a great idea that makes it stick out in a, in a great way. Uh, but uh, so that that's really what I want, you know. I want it to be rocking, but the really clear hooks and very melodic, and uh, and you know, the, my approach to playing guitar solos is pretty much the same as it has been for ages. I mean, I, I just wanted to have, I just want that melody to, to cut through, you know, uh, and I want to the melody to grab the listener and then all the technical stuff to excite them and then you know to to even make the melody stronger you know to, to enhance the melody if you want mm. and it's, uh, was... I, I find it very interesting this era of music because and then like you said it's, it's kind of uh, the melodicness of it because for instance, when you joined Europe, I was born. I was born in 1986. But for some for some reason, I really liked that guitar tone of that era. I liked the the way songs were structured of that era. I mean, you have references on, on a song like The Warrior. You have uh, a reference to the movie The Warriors, which is one of my all time favorite movies. So, so Mine this, too. <laughs> but so this era of music and and kind of art in a way. But why do you think that that's so inspiring for a lot of people? It's a good question. I think there was a lot of love in music back then. I'm not saying that it's not now, but it was love in a different way. You know, people people put their soul into stuff. I mean, it, it, it and also it feels like everything hadn't been done then yet. Mm. And if, for instance, a, a film like The Warrior, after that, there's been tons of movies with the same thing, but nobody came even really close. Plus, it, it was already done once. So now you can't, everything else is going to be a copy. And a lot of, a lot of stuff with, with culture after the 80s feels, can sometimes feel a little bland because everything has been done, you know. Look at all the Star Wars movies that Disney, that, that, complete ass gravy that Disney has been supplying us with compared to the 70s real shit. You know, it's, you can't compare it on the same day. It, it's, uh, I, I don't have a really good explanation, but I feel I totally agree with you. This is, this is what it is. And another thing, a consequence of digital music, I think, is that the past decades we've been hearing band 
bands that only have two good tracks on, a, on, on an album because that's all you need for the singles for digital and then the rest is for fillers and it's right. just horrible it takes away the entire pleasure of listening to an album and it must be really annoying for vinyl freaks you put on a vinyl because back in the days when you put on the vinyl you listen to it turn it around listen to b-side ah, one more time if you really like an album you can listen to it like three or four times uh, and at a go and, and and that's like gone if you have fillers on the entire album so we really aimed to go for 10 really strong songs and we weren't pleased until we had that and i think we i think mission accomplished you know sure outside of your own music that you've made what is your favorite album oh favorite album there's so many Oh, just, man. just one that pops, uh, uh, that, that pops, on, uh, pops up into your head right now. Okay. Then I have to say, uh, Who Do We Think We Are by Deep Purple? Because it was actually the first uh, vinyl I bought. I mean, like an okay. LP. Okay. It was the very first one. And uh, a lot of people say, it's going to say, that's not their best one. Now, maybe it's not, but it's very special to me. And I, that's one of those albums I will listen to start to finish, start to finish, start to finish, you know. Well, but this is a good good uh, segue to uh, working with with Don Airy because uh, he, he's on the uh, Out of This World album as well. What was that like? Did you know him already? I suppose oh, you did. But... Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, it's such an honor to work with, with Don Airy. And the first, I mean, we go way back. I met him in 1987 when he was... Uh, Europe was doing a, a double uh, double shows at Hammersmith Odeon in London, Friday and Saturday. And uh, uh, to the meet and greet, Neil Murray, the bass player from Whitesnake, brought Don Air with him. I knew Neil from before this, and, and he brought Don Airy. And I, I was like, because I was a super fan of uh, Coliseum 2. Have you heard that with Gary Moore playing the guitar? I, I, I love. I don't think I've heard that album, but I would say Gary Moore is probably one of my favorite guitarists of all time. Yeah, you should. When we finish I, I, this, I'll have to, yeah, I'll have to look that up. Coliseum Two, you said. Coliseum Two, yeah, and you had. I think I did two albums, and uh, you had to check that out. I think it's some of Gary's most inspired playing. You know, I like Gary too, obviously. But anyway, uh, uh, so. I played together with Don Airy about 2007, I would guess, this crazy football billionaire started doing all-star fundraising festival shows in Sardinia, uh, in uh, Cagliari on Sardinia, an Italian island. And, uh, you know, it would be like a huge stage, 10,000 people going crazy. And, and then it would be like people from ACDC, me, uh, Michael Schenker, uh, Don Airy, Neil Murray, uh, uh, the Purple guys, you, you know, uh, Roger and, and Ian Pace and uh, Ken Hensley from Ray Heap. It was a lot of people from all the hard rock bands, really. Yes, Rick Wakeman from Yes, mm -hmm. what an amazing guy and funny as hell. <laughs> Great guy. And it was such a pleasure to play with all my heroes, basically. And, and we just had fun. We were there for a couple of days. It was at his golf resort, this crazy guy, Massimo Cellino, wonderful guy. And everything was, you know, complimentary. We had wonderful food and wine and 
and just gliding around there playing having it was just like unbelievable and every night me and don Harry would get stuck in the bar uh, when everybody else went to bed uh, when uh, when Roger Glower got tired of telling us the purpose stories, you know, and went to bed, me and Don would stay by the grand piano and I would shout different Todd Rundgren songs, titles to him. And he would just play them because he's a mus musical genius. He can play anything just, just by thinking about a song. He knows it instantly. And we had so much fun doing that. And I was so, so impressed about his musicality. And we talked about doing something together then. And we were close in 2010 with a tour thing I had going, but it never happened for various reasons. And then when I had the, the first tracks for Others World, I called them and said, I think something that would really work so we finally can play together. Said to him, God, this sounds great. So we ended up playing on four tracks. And I'm so proud and happy, first of all, that we made it happen. Right. You know, but, but I mean, what a genius keyboard player. He's... He is the real deal, you know. Oh, I'm a big fan. <laughs> and with with kind of the the uh, work that went into this album, and you, and you have uh, people like Don playing on it, and kind of the, the what what are your intentions with this band? What, what, how do you see this developing into the future? Well, I think I think this can can go very far. Actually, I mean. We started with, with songs and music. We started in the right direction. We started with the guys getting really well together. But then it's been growing, number one, in Japan. I mean, we pretty much dominated the album charts in Japan this spring. And we got Ron Nevison mixing it. It's, and he did an amazing job, an absolutely amazing job. He's a big part of this. And it was so much fun working with him again. He's a true genius. This guy... It's been, he did Quadrophenia with The Who, Led Zeppelin, he did Kiss. Right. Who didn't he do? I mean, <laughs> Chicago, he did every meatloaf, name it. Uh, he is just uh, one of the greatest ever, and a, a, a true honor and pleasure to have him, to work with him and have him mix this. And so I think this can go really far. I, don't, I mean, the next step is obviously go on tour. We have to wait for the COVID rules and all that to sure, calm down. Sure. But a no-brainer would be to start in Japan where we're number one and go uh, do Southeast Asia. But we can't wait to do the EU and America. I mean, we we want to we want to get out there, and I think we're gonna kill it live. I mean, just imagine the Warrior. I don't know if you heard the Warrior. But that's gonna. That's gonna kill it, like I think we we're ready to go. I mean, we're Usain Bolt ready. We're standing there just waiting to run the shit out of everybody. Last last question then: Is this uh, past two years uh, with with everything that's going on in the world? Is that the longest that you haven't really been on a proper tour? Oh fuck yeah, <laughs> fuck yeah! I was just telling my wife, I haven't been traveling this little since I was a teenager <laughs> and that's quite some time ago and that's the God's honest truth because already in my late teens that's when it started all the traveling you know and this complete stop for 2020 and all that that's the longest I have ever been at home uh, since I was a teenager so it's crazy and then did you 
enjoy that or uh, was it a struggle all of a sudden being uh, home? At I, have to say, I have to say the upside was that I could, I was isolated and I live in a house quite close to the sea, 20 minutes from yeah. the city. So I'm kind of, it's not a lot of people around here, you know, so uh, I got to be, I just turned the phone off went into the studio, locked the door, and just went crazy creative, you know. So all those songs just came out of me, you know. So that, that was one of the good things with, with the isolation, actually. I got to really concentrate on the songwriting. Sometimes that's kind of hard to get going, you know. I, I remember... Uh, Back in, you know, I've heard stories about the band in the 70s that the band comes in and does backgrounds for one day. And then they have to go because their job is to play live. That's how they get cash. Then the producer, it was the producer's job to try to make the rest. Oh, we're missing a guitar. Yeah, let's call him. And, you know, (laughs) but so... uh, Really, to get the time to do the songwriting has been crucial, and also the reason why the album has turned out so great, in my opinion. Okay. So, so yeah, already have a couple of songs for a potential next album uh, written or not yet? Yes, I was still, you know, still on a, on that creative high. So I have three new songs for the new album for the album number two. That's great. So, um, yeah, I can't uh, can't wait to hear what they sound like, and and again. Thank you so much, Key, for taking the time uh, to talk with me. And I wish you all the best with the album. Uh, like you said, it, it's done well in Japan. And now the whole uh, world, I suppose, gets to enjoy it. So uh, let's see what happens. Absolutely. That's all for that. And to you, thanks for this interview. And have a Merry Christmas. Yes, you too. You too. Have a, a great Christmas. And let's hope 2022 will be a year where uh, we can enjoy live music again. <laughs>